invite you to turn with me once again in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, today looking at verses 14 through 28. Before we read God's word, let's look to him once again in prayer and ask for his help. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your precious word. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work among us today. Uh, Lord, impart new life. Give us understanding and lasting change in our hearts, in our minds, and in our lives. We pray today that you would guard us from merely being hearers and not doers of your word, but instead, Lord, enable us to be hearers who keep your word and live it out in our lives. We ask this all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 14. Let's hear the word of God. Now, he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a kingdom and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God is come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him. He takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse, worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God. And keep it. Well, I wonder uh, when the last time was that you seriously considered the devil. Um, I think for a lot of people, when they think about the devil, it uh, evokes images of a silly figure in red tights with horns and a tail. And you mention demons, and they start to picture, picture little orcs something you'd see in a Lord of the Rings uh, film. Well, today I do want us to uh, seriously consider 
the devil, but let's be absolutely clear. When we're talking about the devil, we are not talking about a ridiculous little cartoon figure who whispers in people's ears naughty things. Uh, When we are talking about the devil, we are talking about a, a real spiritual force for evil that stands behind everything and everyone opposed to God and his work in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about. As we, walk, as we look at this passage, I simply want to walk through it uh, together, and I want us to see the logic of Jesus. Maybe at first, as you're reading, how does, how does all of this come together? How does it cohere? I want to give you six words that I think uh, show us what Jesus is saying in this passage. Let me just give them to you now if you want to take notes. Defense, offense, conclusion, application, warning, and promise. Uh, defense, the uh, accusation of Jesus' opponents is self-defeating. Offense, the accusation of Jesus' opponents condemns them. Uh, conclusion, uh, the, the power that Jesus displays is nothing less than the very power of God. And the application is, therefore, it's time to choose sides. But uh, the, uh, the uh, warning of Jesus here, then, is if it's time to choose sides, Jesus wants people to understand that choosing sides with Jesus is far, far more than simply outward moral reformation. It must begin with spiritual regeneration. And then this passage ends with a promise that if you side with Jesus, you will never, ever forget it, uh, regret it. Um, It's been a while since we've been uh, outside of the school of prayer. So maybe it'd be helpful for us today to just get our bearings once again in the gospel of Luke. In the first nine chapters of Luke's gospel, Jesus has been traveling around the region of Galilee, preaching the good news of the kingdom of God and healing the sick. And his preaching and his healing together served one great purpose to show and confirm that he was God's promised king and God's promised Messiah. These, the, the, the preaching of Jesus and the healing of Jesus Uh, manifested the identity of Jesus. But not everybody uh, was on board with that. Not everyone agreed uh, that Jesus was indeed the Christ, as it was confirmed in Luke chapter 9, a kind of high point in the Gospel of Luke when Peter confessed, Jesus, you are the Christ of God. We've seen right away, though, that people disagree with that assessment, and they deny his identity as uh, the Christ. But one thing is certain, these individuals, as they encounter Jesus, they deny who he is, they cannot deny the power of his ministry. They cannot just explain away the authority he displays as he goes forth and preaches and heals. So even if you rejected Jesus as the Messiah, you still had to explain the power of his ministry. That's what the opponents of Jesus try to do in this story. Some people, Luke tells us, Matthew tells us, it's a group of Pharisees, they want to explain Jesus' miracles. Now these are men that uh, we've, we've seen over and over again, these are men who have been offended repeatedly 
by the public ministry of, of Jesus. They were disgusted when Jesus dined with tax collectors and sinners. They were, they were appalled when Jesus allowed a prostitute to touch his feet and anoint him. They were, they were annoyed when Jesus allowed his disciples to pluck grain on the Sabbath. And they were really getting tired of Jesus not observing their man-made rules for Sabbath observance. These guys are just sick of Jesus. They want to get rid of him. And as a result, they were determined to disrupt Jesus' ministry and to destroy his reputation. The Pharisees, they still face that problem. Okay, what do we do then with these miracles? We can't deny that they're miracles. We can't deny that they're taking place. So how are we going to explain this? Well, think about it this way. What, do you, what, does, a, what does a dishonorable politician do when one of their opponents is growing in popularity. They run a smear campaign, don't they? What do they do? They, they begin to, they, they try by spreading lies or half-truths, begin to try to destroy that person's reputation. It's an effective, albeit underhanded strategy. If you, if you publicize a lie, if you smear someone's reputation enough, some people are going to begin to wonder, is that, is that true? Some people will even begin to believe it. And so in an attempt to explain away the power of Jesus' ministry, the opponents of Jesus construct this lie. They have to discredit his power to heal, and the healing of this mute man gives them the chance that they've been waiting for. So on this occasion, here's this man who's mute, and the cause of his muteness was not physiological, it was spiritual. This man was possessed by a demon that caused him to be mute. And when Jesus cast out this demon, this man was immediately able to speak. And the people marveled. How, did, how does Jesus do this? By what power could, could Jesus be the one that we've been waiting for? Could he be the Christ? And in attempts to immediately dash such hopes... Some of them, the Pharisees, said that his powers were not messianic, but demonic. His powers did not come from above, they came from below, as it were. So they, they couldn't deny what he did. So what did they do instead? They simply promulgated a lie. They said Jesus had demonic powers, that he cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of demons. See, so, but Jesus knew what they were thinking. Jesus knew what was in their hearts. And so Jesus responds and begins by making a defense. Look at verses 17 and 18 with me. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a, king, a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. Now Jesus is making an obvious observation. A kingdom or a household cannot stand if it is divided. Think about a, a country maybe during a time of war and uh, the leading military strategists all have their own uh, strategy that they want to implement in dealing with the enemy. They can't come to an agreement so what they decide to do instead is implement all of their strategies at once. What would happen to the army? It would be laid to waste. Or think about uh, our, own, our own national government at times. So when 
uh, Congress can't agree on a federal budget and temporarily the uh, government has to shut down, if that persisted for a long period of time, it would have debilitating effects on our nation. Or imagine a household, uh, a husband and wife who are constantly quarreling with one another. They can't agree on how to raise children. They can't agree on a budget. They can't agree on this and that. And they're constantly fighting, infighting. That house cannot stand. It's an obvious point that Jesus is, is making here. And it's verified by experience. For a kingdom or household to stand, there, there must be unity, not division. So you see what Jesus is doing here. He's exposing the absurdity of the Pharisees' accusation. If, if Jesus' power came from evil spirits, why would he be driving out evil spirits? If, if Jesus is in cahoots with Satan, then why has he been laboring day and night to destroy the kingdom of Satan? You see, the argument is absurd. Satan is not against Satan, or Satan is an idiot. But we know Satan isn't an idiot. Why, therefore, would Satan cast out Satan, Jesus is saying. Now, we recognize Satan is united in his cause. His one great cause to lead people in disobedience against God and rebellion against God and a refusal to submit to his sovereign rule. So Jesus' defense is, is, is simple. Your, your argument is self-defeating. Why would Satan cast out Satan? It's illogical. But then, after giving a defense, Jesus turns the tables and he goes on the offense. Look at verse 19 with me. If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. In other words, if, if I am guilty of casting out demons by the power of demons, then by what authority do your own people cast them out? You see, Jesus wasn't the only one who had provided relief from evil spirits. And so, for example, an Old Testament example, 1 Samuel 16, King Saul was tormented by a harmful spirit. And Saul was told to call for a musician who could play the lyre, calm his spirit, and you know that that musician was young David. And so David would come and he would, he would play and that music would cause the harmful spirit to depart from Saul for a time. He brought relief. New Testament, Acts 19 mentions Jewish exorcists who were not associated with Jesus' disciples, but sought nevertheless to drive out evil spirits in the interests of the Lord. So Jesus turns the argument on his opponents and is saying to them, you can't have it both ways. You can't disapprove of what I am doing and then celebrate your religious heritage and your fellow countrymen who are casting out demons in the name of God. See, Jesus is saying, your sons, your religious heritage condemns you. It's the fact that David could do this by the power of God condemns you. And, and actually, I'm doing something greater than what David did. The relief that David brought was only temporary relief. The relief that I bring when people come to me and trust in me is lasting eternal relief from bondage to Satan and sin. You condemn me while I am doing something greater than David. Um, so Jesus gives this defense 
He goes on this offense, offensive move. And, but let's go to the conclusion here. Look, look at verses uh, 20 through 22. He says, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. The strong man is Satan, and the stronger one is Jesus. You see, uh, Satan is being uh, portrayed here as this kind of wealthy prince, taking it easy in a fortified palace. The guards are set. He's surrounded by his wealth and treasure. He seems utterly unassailable. It's It's a picture of the prince of the power of the air, and his domain was this this earth and the peoples of this earth were slaves to him, his possession. That's the picture here. But Jesus is also declaring in his first coming, Jesus assaulted Satan's kingdom and disarmed him of his power. In other words, the first coming of Jesus was, was a victorious military conquest where the kingdom of God came into this world in the person of Jesus Christ and overcame the kingdom of darkness. And as a man of war, this is language from Isaiah, as a man of war, Jesus showed himself mighty against the foe. He was was led by the Holy Spirit, not away from conflict, but right into conflict. And he won a great victory. He overthrew demons and he overcame the evil one. Jesus has already showed us in the verses that we've looked at already that it makes no sense to attribute his power to evil powers. So, So his power must come from somewhere. And Jesus tells us where that power comes from. Jesus makes it clear in these verses that the power manifested in his ministry is none other than the power of God. Now, Jesus uses the language here of, of the finger of God, which shouldn't have us thinking of, uh, oh boy, I shouldn't have said that. Is it Michelangelo? Is that the painting? Okay, good. Michelangelo reaching out, pointing a finger, touching Adam. That, that's not what we should be thinking of here. <clears throat> I hope it's Michelangelo. I'm not, uh, <laughs> not good on my art history. Um, but what, what should this have us thinking of? It should have us thinking of the Old Testament. This is language that comes right out of the Old Testament. Uh, particularly God's deliverance of his people in Egypt, where God works in power to rescue his people by the Holy Spirit. And therefore, as, as it's said in Matthew, if it is by the power of the Holy Spirit that I drive back Satan's kingdom, then it is evidence that the king has arrived and the kingdom of God has come. In other words, we could put it this way, Satan has met his match in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has come to destroy Satan's kingdom. He has come to disarm the strong man. He's come to overcome. And so, in clear terms, Jesus is saying, I'm not here to serve Satan. I'm here to destroy him. I'm not here to cast out demons by the power of demons. I cast out demons by the power of the spirit of the living God. That is what Jesus is declaring here. And so the conclusion that Jesus draws is that he is God's messianic king 
who entered into the domain of the ruler of this world, and he stripped him of his power. He enters his house and binds the strong man. In Christ, the kingdom of God has come in the power of the Holy Spirit. And dear friends, the kingdom of God is here today. You see, in in his first coming, Jesus conquered Satan. Ultimately, ultimately he did so on the cross. As Jesus paid the price for sin and as Jesus died for sinners, he stripped Satan of his power and through his death and resurrection, he destroyed the one who has the power of death. Heber says, that is the devil to deliver those who, through the fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. In other words, Jesus, Jesus came, Jesus attacked, Jesus laid down his life, Jesus disarmed Satan, Jesus rose, Jesus conquered. Now, there are several other passages that speak to this truth. First in John chapter 12, verses 31 and 32, just listen to this. Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So through Jesus' death and resurrection, the ruler of this world was cast out. Now the nations of the earth are being drawn to Jesus through the gospel. And in Colossians 2, Paul says that through Christ's crucifixion, God disarmed Satan and made a public show of the evil one. He put him to public shame. Acts 26 tells us that Jesus defeated Satan through his resurrection. So now he turns people from the power of Satan to the power of God. It is through the death and the resurrection of Christ that Jesus overcame Satan and rescues his his own. Now, my friends, this has really practical implications for how we, we think about the times in which we live as Christians. Some Christians think that the defeat of Satan is basically just something that's out there in the future. We've got we've to wait for it. That the powers of darkness are currently running unchecked in this world right now. And that will only change when Jesus returns. We've got to wait till he comes again and casts out Satan, casts out demons into the lake of fire. But dear friends, according, according to Luke chapter 11, according to Jesus in John 12, according to Paul in Colossians 2, and according to Luke in the book of Acts, the binding of Satan and the casting out of Satan is not a future event. It's a present reality. Right now, Satan is bound. Satan's domain has been infiltrated. Satan's goods have already been plundered. Satan has already been stripped of his power. Satan's accusing mouth has been shut and he can he can no longer deceive the nations of this world and that is why at the ascension of Jesus Christ he sent forth the church to go to the world with the gospel and undeceive the nations and bring them to the Lord Jesus Christ. And my friends, all of that was achieved in the first coming of Jesus Christ, our crucified and risen King. On the cross, Jesus gave the definitive death blow to Satan. And so Jesus offers a defense. He goes on the offense. He draws a conclusion. And now he makes an application. And the application is simply this. 
If, if Christ is God's king, if Christ has brought the kingdom of God and has conquered Satan, and so, Satan is a conquered foe, then the application is simply this. It's, it's time to take sides. There's, there's no neutral ground here. There's no, there's no fence that you can sit on dividing the kingdom of darkness from the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus makes it clear you're either with him or you're against him. Look at verse 23. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So when the gospel of the kingdom of God comes to you, dear friend, you have a choice to make. Either you believe Jesus is who he says he is, the king, the promised Messiah, the savior of sinners, or you reject him and you stand opposed to his kingdom purposes. It's that clear. There's no third option. You're with Jesus or you're against Jesus. Now, in our pluralistic and relativist culture, we, we don't like things to be black, that black and white, but, but they really are. God has spoken to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. As Hebrews says, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. And my friends, he has spoken to us clearly. And all of Luke's gospel has, has been a powerful demonstration that Jesus is God himself come to save. The angels announced him as God's king. John the Baptist declares him as God's king. He declares himself from the Old Testament to be the Lord who has come to save. Uh, he defeats Satan in the wilderness. He casts out demons. He heals the sick. He raises the dead son of Nain and he himself will go to Jerusalem and suffer and die and after three days be raised from the dead for the salvation of his people. So after yet another powerful demonstration of his identity, his opponents, you see, they cannot deny his power. All they can do is make excuses. All they can do is go on a smear campaign. And my friends, today, this same Jesus, this same Christ comes to us today with his word. And the question is there. The application is there. Which side are you on? You sided with the Lord Jesus Christ, or do you stand opposed to his kingdom? Don't fool yourself into thinking that there's some kind of Switzerland when it comes to the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. There's no middle ground. I want to just take a moment, though, to encourage you. If you've already sided with the Lord Jesus by, by trusting in him. You know, there are times, I think, in the Christian life where all of us will find ourselves wondering if we're actually on the right side. If we, have, have we made the right choice by siding with the Lord Jesus? Did I do the right thing in choosing to follow him? My friends, this story is yet another powerful demonstration that following Jesus is absolutely the right thing to do. Jesus shows us he is from God. He shows us that the kingdom of God has come. He shows us that Satan is a conquered foe. The the terrorist of God's people has been bound. And so following the Lord Jesus is absolutely the right thing to do. But again, you might find yourself in, the Christi in your Christian life, in your Christian walk, in certain situations, wondering if you are indeed on the right side. And 
I think these questions often arise in our minds during certain times. Uh, Times of physical exhaustion. Times of opposition from friends and family. Times of Times of moral failure when we've just failed the Lord Jesus. Times of isolation. Times of separation from the fellowship of the saints. But brothers and sisters, this passage is here to remind us of who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do. And if you are in Christ Jesus today, you should come away saying, by the grace of God, I'm on the right side. I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one I should follow no matter what may come in this life. And that understanding the times between the first and second coming of Christ therefore also helps us understand we are living between the first and second coming of Christ and what that means for us. In the first coming, Jesus dealt a death blow to Satan. And in the second coming, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we live in a time in which the evil one has been disarmed. But he is still an active foe. He is still the enemy of the people of God. There's still a spiritual battle to be fought. But if you've trusted in Christ, you are on the right side of history. And the end of the story has already been written in the plan of God. And so if it's time to take sides, then Jesus warns us that truly siding with him involves more than superficial reformation. It must begin with spiritual regeneration. So for the person who maybe thinks they can sit on the fence, or the person who thinks they can get in the kingdom of God by just being a good person, Jesus gives this warning in verses 24 through 26. Take a look at those verses with me. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Jesus is describing here a person who tries to, to start afresh, to tries to start a new life, tries to turn a new leaf, tries to clean up their life, tries uh, their best to live at least outwardly a more righteous life. These verses, though, also lift a veil on a spiritual world that is often ignored in our materialistic and naturalistic culture. It shows us that demons can enter people leave people, and later return under certain conditions. It tells us that demons are restless creatures who wander but seek a place to call home. It says that they seek to find their home in the soul of a person, and that in some cases, a person may be possessed by many demons. Now, why does Jesus tell us this? He's not saying that this is the case with every single individual, but what is Jesus communicating at the most basic level here? I think he's warning us that we are only safe from the forces of evil when Christ dwells in our hearts by faith. It's not simply enough to clean house. We need someone to fill the vacancy. And that someone by the Holy Spirit must be the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what is being said here. 
You see, if all we have is our self-efforts at personal reformation, without the saving work of God's Spirit, we may very well end up off worse than before. Jesus is talking here about a person who experiences the departure of a demon without spiritual regeneration, without without an inward change of heart. See, the evil spirit leaves for its own reasons. It was not evicted by the gospel. It was not driven out by the Lord Jesus Christ. And once the evil departs, this person then goes on to try to be a better person, to clean up their act, try to tidy up their life. They seek outward reformation without inward renewal. But then the unclean spirit decides, I'm going to go back home. I'm going to go back to where I was and finds the house still vacant. So this time, the demon goes and gets seven more of his diabolical friends and no doubt wreaked havoc in this man's life. So what's it saying to us? It's, it's saying true and lasting change can only happen when the Spirit of God renews us and when Christ abides with us. Our lives must not only be swept clean, we must have Christ dwell in our hearts by faith, as Paul says in Ephesians. J.C. Ryle put it this way. I thought this was a catchy way of capturing it. What we need, first of all, is not to be moralized. We need to be spiritualized. We need the Spirit of Christ to come into our hearts and change us and cleanse us and transform us. So you see, dear friends, Jesus is blasting the lie. He's obliterating the lie that being a Christian simply means cleaning up your act. Being a Christian simply means being a good person, making moral improvements by your own religious efforts. Last night, um, Kelsey and I had dinner with uh, neighbors of ours, and they invited some of their friends, and we were, uh, we were on the back porch for a while talking, and one of the, one of the guys was just, uh, how do I put it delicately, uh, just speaking profanity after profanity, okay? He went inside, Kelsey was inside, and I guess at some point Kelsey mentioned that I was a pastor, so he came out and did what everyone does when they find out I'm a pastor. He, he came out, first of all, and said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I didn't know. I didn't know who you were. I said, you don't have to apologize to me. And then later that evening, he, he said to me, look, I want you to know, I, I really am a good person. I really, I really try to be a good person. I pray all the time. And uh, I said to him, I, I, want, I want to tell you what the, what the message of Christianity actually is. The message of Christianity is that you're actually not a good person, and neither am I, apart from God's grace. You're a wretch, and so am I, apart from God's grace. And the only way that you can actually have lasting and true transformation in your life, the only way that you can biblically be a good person, is when Christ dwells in your heart by faith. Now, I'd like to say that uh, he immediately bowed the knee and uh, confess the Lord Jesus Christ, but that, di- that didn't happen at that point. And who knows, God may use it in his life. But just an example, prime example of how we think external works can qualify us for the kingdom of God. And Jesus is making it absolutely clear here that outward reformation without spiritual regeneration can very well lead to demonic domination. The destruction of souls. That's what Jesus is saying here. 
So we need Jesus. We need, we need what we really need at the end of the day. All, each and every one of us is spirit-wrought regeneration, producing new life, new desires. We need Christ to dwell in and rule over our hearts. We need the stronger one to break the power of reigning sin and, and set the captives free. And we come to the final word, though, here. It's a, stated as an indicative, as a, as a fact, but there's a promise underlying this. Christ promises that if you hear his word, you trust him and heed his word, meaning you obey it, you will never regret it. You will be truly and eternally blessed. Verses 27 through 28, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. In the Gospel of Luke, those who hear the word of God and keep it are the disciples, the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in Luke chapter 6, Jesus describes those who hear the word and do it as people who build their house upon a rock so that when the storm of God's judgment comes, it stands firm. And then in Luke chapter 8, Jesus describes those who hear his word and do them as those who bear fruit a hundredfold in their lives. And again in Luke 8, Jesus describes those who hear his word and do it as members of his family. And so the blessings of hearing God's word and doing it could really be summarized on the, uh, this way, on the day of judgment, without being destroyed, standing before the Lord God, living a fruitful life so that you bear fruit a hundredfold in this life. And the blessing of belonging to the family of God, naming God as your father and Jesus Christ as your elder brother. But there's more in the Gospel of Luke. All the way through Luke's Gospel, one word used for Jesus' followers is the word blessed. We are blessed because we are citizens of the kingdom of God. We are blessed because we will be satisfied. We are blessed because our mourning will turn to joy. We are blessed because we will have a great reward. We are blessed because we have seen that things that the prophets of old long to look into. We are blessed because when the master of the house returns, he will set us over all of his possessions. And so, dear friends, if we side with Jesus, if we trust in Christ, if we hear and heed his word, we are blessed beyond imagining. So you see the logic of Jesus in this passage. Jesus has refuted the accusations of his opponents with both a defensive and an offensive move. Jesus has drawn the conclusion out of that debate that his power is not from Satan, it is from God because he is God's son, the king. Jesus has applied that to say that there are only ultimately two options before each and every one of us. You're either with Jesus or you're against Jesus. You're either a citizen in the kingdom of darkness or by the grace of God, you have been called into the kingdom of God's beloved son. Jesus has warned us that siding with Jesus is more than simple moral reformation. It must, it must begin with spiritual regeneration. And finally, Jesus has given us the promise that those who hear and heed his word, they will be richly and eternally 
blessed. So my simple application and my my challenge to all of us here today is simply this. Hear the word of Christ and keep it. Let's pray. Father, help us to hear the word of the Lord Jesus Christ and to keep it in our lives. We thank you that Jesus has overcome Satan, sin, and death. Thank you that he has bound the strong man and plundered his house. Lord, may Christ dwell in all of our hearts by faith so that we are cleansed and truly and really changed so that we might know your eternal blessing. We pray all of these things in the name of Christ. Amen.